Let's pray for the preaching of God's word. Father, thank you so much that we can come before you today, O oh Lord, and we can, we can hear, Lord, the words of life. We pray, Father, that you would bless us with your presence, Lord. We pray that you would be honored and glorified, Lord, in and through your word. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would uh, bless me, O oh Lord, that you would bless me to preach the truth of your word, O oh Lord, as harsh as that truth can be to hear sometimes and as difficult as it can be, Lord. May you make our hearts pliable, Lord, to what your word says. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. Let me read it for you. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So the, if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May he bless its eternal truths to our hearts. Have you ever experienced a crisis in life where you were faced with some hardship or adversity that seemed so insurmountable to you that you said to yourself, you know, I, I've never experienced anything like, quite like this before. How can I get through it? And where will I find the strength to go forward? You see, that's the challenge that confronts us in our passage this morning as Christians. Where and to whom do we turn when we're faced with circumstances in life that appear to be hopeless and out of our control? You see, the situations that these early Christians faced with this morning was that they were hunted down and persecuted by Saul. Now, you might remember that Saul was introduced to us at the death of Stephen in Acts chapter 8. There we're told that after he approved of the death of Stephen, he ravaged the church by entering house after house and dragging off Christians and throwing them in prison. So that the Christians in Jerusalem were all scattered about throughout the regions of, Jumeirah, of Judea and Samaria. And now here in Acts chapter 9, Saul has received letters from the high priest to take to the synagogues in order that he might arrest the Christians who've been scattered abroad and bring them back to Jerusalem to be tried, convicted, and even possibly executed. And so at this point, at least from a, from a human perspective, these early Christians were faced with an impossible predicament as they were on the verge of being exterminated by Saul and the religious authorities. And so the questions that we'll seek to answer from our passage this morning are, who do we turn to in moments of crisis? Where do we get our hope from as believers during these times? And how we as Christians can learn from their story in order to find hope 
and comfort in the difficulties that we face as believers. Now, with that being said, we'll look at our passage today under three headings, three headings. First, the persecution of the righteous. And second, the presence of Christ. And third, the plan of God. Persecution of the righteous, the presence of Christ, and the plan of God. Now, I, I don't know about you guys, but almost every time I experience personally some kind of hardship in my life, or adversity, I almost always think to myself that it's because of something I personally did wrong as a Christian. That is, I generally trace the cause of my sufferings back to some sin that I committed. And even worse than that, there have been times where I've even wondered to myself silently if God himself was upset with me and punishing me for some misbehavior. But is that really what the Bible teaches us as Christians? that our sufferings in life are a punishment for God from some, from, for some sins that we ourselves committed. Moreover, was it true for these Christians here in Acts chapter 9, the ones Saul was, pers- Saul was persecuting, was the persecution that they were experiencing from him a direct result of some sin that they committed? Well, let's read the text together and find out what it says. Verses 1 and 2, But Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And he asked them for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. You see, nowhere in this passage does it say that the reason that these early Christians were being hunted down and persecuted by Saul was on account of some sin that they had committed against God. Nor does it imply that they deserved what was happening to them. No. The text simply states that Saul, who was an unbeliever at this point in the narrative, he clearly hated all Christians. He hated both male and female Christians alike. And why? Why did he hate them? Why did he persecute them so very fiercely? Well, if we look at, uh, closely at our text, we'll see the answer. There it tells us that it was simply because they were disciples of the Lord who therefore belonged to the way. Now, what did it mean to belong to the way back in those days? In his commentary uh, on the book of Acts, Craig Keener says that in the early church, the term the way was used to describe the followers of Christ who believed that he himself was their righteousness in opposition to their own good works. And I, I, I think it's interesting that Saul himself, being a proud Pharisee, believed that righteousness could only be attained by the keeping of the Mosaic law. And so this explains to us then why he hated these Christians so much. Because in accepting the righteousness of Christ, they were thereby rejecting any righteousness of their own. A righteousness that Saul himself believed foolishly that he possessed. And so Saul was outraged because he was offended by their doctrine. And so because these Christians identified themselves as followers of Christ and embraced his righteousness, a righteousness by faith, they therefore experienced the same kind of hostility and venom that people showed to Jesus during his very own earthly ministry and life. 
And this is exactly what Jesus meant when he warned his disciples that they would be hated by all for his name's sake. John 15, verses 18 and 19. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of this world, but because I chose you out of the world, the world hates you. 1 John 3, 13. Do not be surprised, brothers, when the world hates you. And so, friends, we can clearly see that the vast majority of our sufferings in life as believers are not necessarily because of some sin that we committed, but simply because we are followers of Christ who embrace the doctrines of righteousness by faith alone, apart from anything we can do in and of ourselves to earn God's favor. And so the world hates us for it. You see, the world hates the doctrine of righteousness by faith because that means that we as sinners have no righteousness of our own that makes us acceptable to God. But rather, on the contrary, we are characterized in the Bible as sinners who have no ability to please God apart from Jesus. And that, my friends, is not a doctrine that will make you very popular with the masses. In fact, if faithfully proclaimed and lived out in your life, it might even cause you some suffering in one form or another in this life. Now, I do realize that being hated in this life is not a very pleasant topic for us as Christians because none of us like to suffer, right? It's not something that we look forward to or enjoy as believers. And truthfully, just knowing that our sufferings is because of our identification with the Lord Jesus Christ, that's, that's not enough for us. We're not comforted by that. That doesn't really bring us any real and genuine comfort in the midst of our sufferings. And if that's the case, then what is? the source of our comfort in the midst of our suffering? How can we find hope in times of crisis as believers? Well, friends, according to the Bible, our hope as Christians lies completely in the sovereignty of our God, in knowing that he alone is in absolute control of every single aspect of our lives, right down to the very details, friends, of our sufferings as believers. And friends, I, I say this as someone who has personally suffered as a Christian and as someone who has also wondered to himself during those sufferings, things like, why is God allowing this to happen to me? Why is he allowing me to go through it? Am I really a Christian? Is there truly a reason behind the sufferings that I'm currently experiencing in my life at the moment? But you see, then you know what? You see, then I'm reminded of the alternative, right? As I try to imagine a world where suffering and evil have absolutely no purpose at all. A world where tragedies just occur and happen to us randomly, where God has no control over them whatsoever. Now, what kind of world would that be? And what kind of God would we all be serving if there was nothing at all that he could do about our sufferings, if he was unable and unwilling to exercise any power or control over them. I mean, think about it. Could you ever really trust in a God 
who was unable to keep all the promises that he made to you that are written for us in the Bible. Promises that have reference to our future in heaven in his presence as believers. A future where he promises us all that one day all suffering and evil will finally be no more. You know, R.C. Sproul once said that if there is a single maverick molecule in this universe running around loose and totally free of God's sovereignty and control, then we have absolutely no guarantee as Christians that a single promise of God to us will ever be fulfilled. That, my friends, is more of a nightmare to me than anything. I think R.C. Sproul is absolutely right. And so you see, friends, as believers who truly experience pain and suffering in this life, one source of comfort for us comes from knowing that our God is sovereign and that he works all things together for our good as believers, for the good of those who have obtained a righteousness by faith through the Lord Jesus Christ, the persecution of the righteous. And that brings us to our second point, which is the presence of Christ, the presence of Christ. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. Now, as he went on his way, he approached, that is Paul, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So we saw that one way to find comfort and hope in the midst of suffering as believers is by trusting in God who is absolutely sovereign over those sufferings. But another way that we can find comfort and hope in the midst of our suffering, brothers and sisters, according to the Bible, is if we understand that Christ is absolutely present with us, especially when we suffer. Notice how at the very moment that Saul was traveling on the road to Damascus to do harm to God's people, uh, Notice how he was divinely intercepted and blinded by a light that was far greater than the sun. You see, this light was so very fierce in its radiance that Saul and his companions were thrown down to the ground on their knees. And the voice that Saul heard in the midst of this amazing light was none other than a living, resurrected Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was personally confronting Saul for his mistreatment of his people. Now, it's important that we, that we don't miss the significance of this passage because what it's telling us as believers is that Jesus is uniquely present with us, his people, and very aware of all of the hardships, trials, and dangers that threatens his church. And I'm not talking about the church as a physical structure, but I'm talking about the church as a spiritual body, spiritual body of individual believers who at this time were all scattered abroad, scared of Saul, and they were scattered throughout Jamedia, uh, Judea and Samaria, extremely afraid of Saul and all the threats that he had made against them. But Jesus, you see, he cared about every single one of them and was very concerned for their safety. And you can, uh, you can only imagine how many prayers were being offered up at this time by the saints in an effort to keep Saul's evil plan from being carried out. And that's why when the Lord appeared to Ananias 
in a vision and told him to go to Saul in order to lay hands on him and to pray for him. Ananias was at first extremely reluctant to do this. And he said to Jesus, Lord, I've heard about this man from many people, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And now he has authority from the chief priest to bind everyone who calls on your name. But you see, little did Ananias know that at that very moment, the Lord had already appeared to Saul and literally stopped him in his tracks. And friends, this truth should comfort those of us who are going through any sufferings and hardships today, knowing that Jesus loves us and is very concerned about our well-being as believers. And even more comforting is the fact that he is uniquely present with us in everything that we experience as believers. You say, in what way is he present with us today? Well, in pretty much the same way that he was present with the Christians in our passage. You see, if you're a Christian today, Christ is always present through you, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in your heart. And this is why he could promise us that he would never leave us nor forsake us in times of trouble. He would always be with us, even to the very end of the age. And because of the Spirit's presence in our lives, friends, we can all enjoy true and genuine peace in the midst of every hardship and every trial we endure as Christians, no matter how difficult the situation. We can also take comfort in the fact that even if the Lord does not uh, choose to deliver us from difficult situation, he is always present in our hearts and will never abandon us in times of trouble. I want to share with you all a story about a friend of mine. He's a Christian who lives in Jackson, Mississippi. He's a very kind and gentle and loving older man who's literally one of the nicest people that I've ever met. Well, recently he was robbed at gunpoint by four men after returning home from a late night at work. And he wrote about his experience on social media. And this is what he said. How will you respond when the opportunity comes? As four masked men rushed towards me in the semi-darkness, I realized that this was not the opportunity that I was seeking at the end of the day. As a gun was jammed into my chest, he demanded keys. I responded, if you kill me, I'll go straight to heaven. He repeated again, keys. I was not looking for an opportunity. The words just came out. Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. One of his accomplices found my car keys, wallet, cell phone in my pockets, and suddenly it was all over. And all the stuff that I had so depended on was gone. Sitting there stunned, I prayed, thank you, Lord. It makes no sense. But you love these men and you die for them. May the name of Jesus stick like glue to their brains. Perfect peace, no. A mind stayed on the sovereignty of God? Nope. Trusting God? Yes. If you desire an opportunity for perfect peace and a steadfast mind, the requirement is trusting, even when the opportunity makes no sense. Isaiah 26.3, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you. 
Once again, friends, you can take comfort in the fact that Jesus is always present with you and he will never abandon you nor forsake you in times of need. And why? Why can you be so very confident in his presence in your life as Christians? Well, look closely at verses 4 and 5 and notice what Jesus says to Saul there. Notice the choice of words that he uses with respect to the persecution of his people at the hands of Saul. Verse 4, and falling down to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. You see, isn't it interesting that Jesus equated the persecution of his people at the hands of Saul with actually persecuting Jesus himself? And what he's saying is that, that, that the bond of union that exists between me and my people is so very inseparable that what, whatever is done to them for my name's sake is likewise done to me. That's how much I love them because they are my body and my bride and they belong to me. Matthew 25, 40, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you also did it to me. You see, union with Christ is true for every Christian because Christ lives in us. He takes up residence in our hearts. And this is true, friends, whether we feel it or not, or whether we're even conscious of it or not, Christ lives in us. We may change, but he does not. See, not only is union with Christ our source of salvation for us, but it's also the life of God within us, the life of God in the human soul. It is Christ in us, the hope of glory. What a blessing, friends, as believers. We are all personally united to the living, incarnate, crucified, and resurrected Jesus, the presence of of Christ. That brings us to our last and final point, which is the plan of God. The plan of God. You know, I wonder uh, if during the time that these early Christians were under this intense pressure from the persecution and threats of Saul, I, I wonder if one of the methods that they used to comfort one another in the midst of their crisis was by repeating the phrase, God is sovereign. We need to trust the plan of God. God has a purpose for evil, and he's working all things together for our good. Now, perhaps you guys have heard that before. Perhaps you've heard it so many times that it's almost become a cliche to you, right? And yet, according to the Bible, it's actually pretty sound advice for Christians. You see, the Bible does teach us that there is a reason for suffering and evil in the world. That God uses sin to bring to pass his plan of redemption in human history. For example, God used the sin of Adam in the garden as a means of displaying his mercy and grace to sinners through the redemption of a promised Messiah. God used the sin of Joseph's brothers in selling him down to Egypt and into slavery in order that he might protect his people from the famine in Egypt and enable them to move from Canaan to Egypt. 
Similarly, God used the stubbornness and cruelty of Pharaoh towards the Hebrews in order that he might deliver them from Pharaoh, from Egypt, with a mighty hand. And most importantly, God used the crucifixion of Jesus, which was extremely sinful, as a means of bringing to pass his plan of redemption for people from all tribes, tongues, and nations. You see, brothers, all these believers were faced with one crisis after another in life, but they were all delivered from them according to the sovereign plan of a mighty God. So according to the Bible, God does have a purpose for evil and works all things together for our good as Christians, whether he chooses to reveal that to us or not. Such was the case in our passage today in the persecution that was led by Saul. You see, Saul was guilty of doing much evil to God's people, but God had a good purpose for it because he would use Saul's sin to humble him and to bring him to repentance in order that he might show Saul his sovereignty by turning one of Christianity's fiercest rivals into one of the most faithful and uh, faithful followers and devoted followers of the Lord Jesus Christ that the world has ever seen. So this former enemy of the faith would take the gospel abroad to both Jews and Gentiles alike. And so telling someone who's suffering that they can trust in God's presence with them through those sufferings and that he has a plan for them in those sufferings may indeed sound cliche, but it's absolutely true according to the Bible. It's actually good advice because it turns the person's focus away from their circumstances and places their focus on the God who is able to change those circumstances if he so chooses. It takes our focus It takes our eyes off our sufferings and places them on a God who has called us to walk by faith and not by sight. You know, I was a seminary student in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, There was a popular little restaurant down the street from RTS that I like to think that I discovered that was near our campus. They had some of the best barbecue in town. But one day I noticed that they had a, a little interesting slogan on their marquee outside the restaurant that read, Cook by faith and not by sight. Now, that may be a terrible philosophy to live by if you're looking for success in the restaurant business, right? But it's an absolutely terrific philosophy to live by if you're going to be successful in this life as a Christian. Brothers and sisters, we walk by faith and not by sight. Especially when you're going through suffering because God calls us to trust in him and not in the things that we see. So in summary, we learn that when you're facing a crisis or suffering from some kind of adversity as a Christian, first and foremost, you need to trust in the sovereignty of God. Second, you need to trust in the presence of God. And lastly, you need to trust in the plan of God. Now, you might be thinking, well, that sounds good, but is that really biblical? You know, Joe, can you show me a place in the Bible where all three of these elements were present when, God, when God's people faced a crisis. Well, look at Genesis chapter 315 with me. Speaking to the serpent who was indwelt by the devil at this time, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, at this point, Adam and Eve have sinned in the Garden of Eden and have thereby plunged the entire creation into sin and ruin and misery. 
And although God cursed the serpent, he made a promise to Adam and Eve that must, be, must have given them hope in the midst of their discouragement. And how did God himself choose to comfort them in the midst of their grief? Well, amazingly, the contents of God's promise to them included the sovereignty of God, the presence of God, and the plan of God for redemption. In verse 15, God says, I will, he shall, you shall. Here, God goes from the first to the third person, saying exactly what will occur in human history. And notice that he's not asking anybody to volunteer to play any role in a movie. He's simply exercising his sovereign control over human choices, saying it will exactly be done, like I said. And secondly, God is assuring Adam and Eve of his presence, his presence when he says, I will put enmity between the devil and Eve. He is referring indirectly here to the presence of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of his people that will separate them from those who belong to the devil. And cause them to oppose the works of darkness by hating sin and loving God. So God will be present in the hearts of his people throughout this struggle in human history. And finally, God assures Adam and Eve of the success of his plan of redemption by assuring them of his victory over Satan. By saying that the Messiah, he, the Messiah, shall crush the head of the serpent. And we all know that this prophecy was literally fulfilled on the cross of Calvary as Jesus died a sacrificial death on behalf of sinners in order to purchase our redemption as Christians. And so, friends, if you're, if you're suffering from any kind of hardship, trial, or adversity right now, at this moment, you can be absolutely sure of God's love for you because he is surely present with you and working all things together for your good. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love of us, that you've united us, Lord, to the Lord Jesus. And because of that union, we are, he's always present with us, and he would never forsake us, even in times of trouble, even in times, Lord, where we feel like he's not present. He is. He's present, Lord, in our sufferings, in our adversities, in our trials. He will never leave us. Nothing can separate us from your love in Christ Jesus, not even our sin which we sometimes foolishly believe does. And so we pray, Lord, that you would give all of us comfort and assurance of your presence and your love, and that you would help us, Lord, to live our lives, Lord, in obedience to you, that we may be salt and light in the midst of a world that hates us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.